Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18, please. We continue our study in this book. Continue to look at the new character in the book, David, and his dealings with King Saul. And I think they, this chapter helps us to map out what's going to happen throughout the rest of the book. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with the text. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us with it. Help us to uh, see the truth therein, to be transformed by the truth of your word, to be changed in the inner man, to be molded more and more into your image, remove from us our sin, our disregard of your law, our guilt and our shame, and Lord, lead us to your truth. In your name we pray, amen. So, as I read read this text this um, week, I was reminded a lot of my own high school experience, and really just everyone's high school experience, I guess. When I was in high school, I played a few sports. I was okay at those sports, um, but I wasn't in like the jock group. I was in the nerd group. Of people, and uh, I like to play video games and that sort of thing, uh, collectible card games. I read fantasy literature. I was in the weird group, you know. Uh, I like to do good in school. I never really had any dates, you know, that sort of thing. That was me and my little great friends. Uh, there was always a real social divide between my group of friends and this popular group, and even though I had nothing in common with those guys. We didn't like the same things. We didn't do the same things. I desperately wanted to be them. Was it because I was unhappy? Not really. I don't think I was unhappy, at least looking back. Why did I want to be them? Because every waking moment in high school consisted of if I could just have what they had, if I could be really good at sports, if I could be really popular at school, whatever, if I could just score the touchdowns and if all the teachers liked me and if everything I did was perfect like they they do, then my life would be set. I wanted to be them. Maybe, maybe I was unhappy. I don't know. And I'm sure we all can relate with that in some way or another. Maybe not exactly like that. Maybe you were in the popular group. I don't know. And uh, I don't know, but there's always somebody, something we want to be, we don't think we are, we compare ourselves to them. All right, we, we, we could all pick this group. Why is this? Well, ultimately, we think we should have better than what we have. But there's something else as well. We fear man. We believe that the praise of man that the esteem of man is higher than any commodity on earth, and we crave it. Just look at our political system. Just watch television. Look at everything that's going on all around us. We crave the esteem of man. And since man has the power to make or break us, that's why we fear him. Compare that with the fear of the Lord. The fear of God, which... 
You know, we put God in that, that's when we put God in that same seat. Since he has power over us, we fear him and we seek to do right by him. So, except the difference with that is, the scriptures tell us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Which makes sense, right? I mean, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. We should all fear or respect where this real power lies. What does scripture tell us about the fear of man? Well, Saul represents a good picture of what this looks like. Saul was, has desired the praise of men so much that he made decisions that cost him his kingdom. It also cost him his sanity, as we're going to see moving forward in this book, even in this particular text. How he's now being plagued by an evil spirit from the Lord. Meanwhile, David, someone who fears the Lord, has seen success and will continue to see success. And we're going to see this divide throughout the rest of this book. And I think it, again, starts really strongly in this passage today. We're going to look at Saul's, the roots of Saul's fear of man. I think it will help us to see our own fear. It's a besetting sin that can take joy away from us and can drive away our family and friends. And so, again, I want to compare two personalities in this text, Saul and his fear of man, David and his fear of the Lord. And so with that, I'm going to read the text, and you can remain seated as this is a lengthier text this morning. We'll be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 18, and we'll read it in its entirety. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the son of, or the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day, or took him that day, and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David. From that day on, the next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved when in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and but had departed from Saul so Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all of his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. 
But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Mirab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the same time, Mirab's daughter should have been given to David. She was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they, and they told Saul the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. And Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. So Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. But when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose, went along with his men, and killed two hundred of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. But when Saul saw that saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. The princes of the Philistines came out to battle as often as they came out. David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Amen. It's God's word. So a few items to to back up and to just, just re- review what we've been talking about. Remember last week we read that David slayed the Philistine giant Goliath, and now Saul is choosing to keep him close in that he's choosing to not let him go back to his father's house any longer. This is kind of, you kind of understand this when Goliath hits the ground, it's kind of the thud that made waves go all throughout the land. Not only Israel, in that now Israel is going to esteem this man David, but also in the Philistines. Wow, who is this David? And so now Saul keeps him close, won't let him go home. And you can see throughout this text, Saul's stock is beginning to drop almost rapidly. And David is David's stock is going up exponentially. I think even as we read the rest of this book, we're going to see this changing of the guard between David and Saul. Everything that Saul touches now will turn to rust. Everything that David touches will turn to gold. And there's this real opposite here. I think Scripture provides us with lots of these seed of the serpent, seed of the, of the woman comparisons. Remember, going back to Genesis 3, but I think this is probably one of the strongest that we see here between Saul and David. 
And just a quick aside concerning David and Jonathan's friendship. A lot has been written about the friendship of these two. Obviously, they had a very strong bond. Jonathan kind of gives him all of his weapons and armor. This is a sign of submission and honor to David. We're told that they made a covenant together, and I think we'll see that later again in this book. Um, Again, a lot has been written about this friendship. Uh, However, this is a reminder to us that this is not a pattern for biblical friendship here. We're reading about the story of redemption. So let's not read too much into this. For me, this friendship, rather than being a model, I think it's a sign of hope for us in the midst of all the craziness that is going on around David and Jonathan. For David, he's not allowed to go home. He's sent from one battle to the next. And so who better to have a friend than the other guy who's really great in combat? Jonathan. And for Jonathan, his dad is slowly losing his mind. He's already lost his kingdom. So why not have a friend like David who seems so normal and stable? So for both of them, I think they represent this stability to one another. And it's a good thing to have that sort of thing in your life. It's a very good thing. This passage isn't showing us how to get that sort of friend or how to be that sort of friend. It's just showing us hope in the madhouse that Saul's house is becoming. And so with that, let's look at Saul and his fear of man. Saul, we're told in this text in verse 9, sets his eye on David from that day. What does that mean? Well, David is successful in no matter what he does, where he goes, he's killing Philistines all over the place, so much so that the women of the area craft this little song about him and about Saul as well. You see that in verse 7. Saul has struck down his thousands, which is pretty impressive, right? And David, his ten thousands. Why would they make a song like that? It was a slight to Saul, obviously. We can't imagine them making this song for any other reason. Saul hasn't been altogether popular as a king. Remember, he started his reign by sending dead animal parts across the region, threatening people into fighting for him. So for them to say that David is killing ten times the amount of Philistines as Saul is, it's probably a little bit of a slight to Saul, and he takes it that as that. But Saul, I mean, he's okay, right? He's the king. He shouldn't care if he isn't the one that's been given all the credit. He just wants his people to prosper, right? He wants what's best for the people of Israel because he is their king and he really wants them to do right. That's not the case. He is angry. says he eyed David from that day. He thinks that David is after his kingdom. We get no such indication here other than the fact, of course, the prophet Samuel uh, did anoint David as the king. Israel. But we totally get this from Saul's perspective. At least we, 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 would, we may not admit it, but we totally do get it. It's the same way that we are other successful people. We want to have what they have, and if we can't have it, then neither can they, or at least they shouldn't have it. Probably they've done something wrong to get it. They're bad people. You know how we make all these justifications. It's unfair, or something else comes up in our minds. I hear this a lot as a high school teacher. 
uh, and anytime a student doesn't make the grade they want, all of a sudden it's someone else's fault. I've told them more than once that I would wear a shirt to school that says it's my fault if it would help them feel better, but they, they don't want me to do that. Um, we began to somehow justify saying bad things about them because we can't stand when someone else is successful. Saul even has this evil spirit from the Lord come on him again. And what, what happens to him this time? Well, it says he was raving inside of his house. And he had a spear in his hand because apparently when people sit around their house, they just hold weapons. And he wanted to pin David against the wall with it. And he tried. David moved, thankfully. Thankfully he wasn't eyeing him too hard and he didn't aim very well. Maybe he should have been at the spear range instead of listening to harp music. But David got away. We might want to think that Saul is somehow being coerced into this when you see um, you know, this evil spirit coming on him. But look at verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he departed from Saul. He was afraid of David. Because David followed the Lord. There it is, right? Saul's own time with the Lord hadn't been all that productive. And Saul couldn't follow the Lord. He chose not to time and time again. Now that David is, he's angry about it. Saul tried to have him killed, collecting the price for his daughter's hand in marriage. And David not only brings this price, but he doubles it up killed 200 Philistines and delivers their foreskins to Saul, a symbol of the wickedness of the Philistines compared to the chosen ones of Israel, the uncircumcised Philistines. Remember David shouting at Goliath, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Well, this is a symbol of that, that David really sees them as wicked people. He brings 200. And when, when Saul, realizing that not only did David live, but he did this in kind of this superstar fashion, and now his daughter loves him, all of this heaps burning coals upon Saul's head. And what does it say there at the end of chapter 18 and verse 29? Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul's was David's enemy continually. So consider a moment, for a moment, a thing in your life that causes you to look around at the success of others and desire that same kind of success. I'll share mine. And it's similar to some of yours, I'm sure. Let's take, for instance, our church, Redeemer Community Church. Let's be honest with each other. We'd love to fill this new space and have folks coming in droves to be a part of something that we think is a really good thing. We think it's such a good thing that I think sometimes we have trouble seeing what others are doing as good things as well. I know I'm guilty of that. I won't put guilt in, in, in on you, but for me... It's seeing the success of others, and instead of delighting in it, I'm afraid of it. Not only that, 
what do we do as a result of that then? We set our eye on those churches. We watch them. We judge them. Rather than God staying our standard, the churches that we want to become now are our standard. And we fear them more than we fear God. If we aren't careful, we could even make those churches our enemy continually. I'm using this as an example to show you how this progression works in our own lives. It doesn't have to be church or success in church. If you get a group of pastors together, that's what it is. But we need to be on guard against this in all realms of our lives. And I think for all of us here, especially when it comes to this church plant, it doesn't mean that we don't call a spade a spade. We're still going to preach the truth And we want to recognize when others aren't. There's nothing wrong with that. But there are churches out there that are doing really good work. And we should delight to see that. We should delight to see the Lord's work going on in those places. Just like we should delight to see success in anyone's life. When anyone is doing well, we should delight in that. Why didn't Saul just delight in the fact that the promises of God, the deliverance of the people from the Philistines, was happening at the hand of David? He should have delighted in that as their king, but he didn't. He hated David for it. So when we take our eyes off Jesus, I think this is important for us to understand, they naturally go to these other places, and those other places every single time are imperfect standards that will cause us to do lots of things, like doubt and hate and walk away from the good things that God has for us. And again, that's not just church, but that's every single area of our lives. And so let's be on guard, brothers and sisters. And so next, let's look at David and his fear of the Lord. David, on the other hand, consider what we have here. David's no dummy. Obviously, he's no dummy. He knows that Saul does not like him. But what does he do when Saul sends him to places? I would have ran. What did David do? We know he feared the Lord because he followed his king wherever he was told to go, even though Saul was out to kill him with this obvious whole pin him to the wall incident. Remember, David was there for that. He didn't like accidentally dodge the spear. You know, David was a a good soldier and he, he, he dodged the spear. But then the next day he went and did battle for this king who told him go out and kill Philistines. And he did that and he did it well. We know that he didn't do this out of fear of his own life. You know, we don't get the picture that David was somehow afraid of Saul and that Saul was like this monster and David was this little guy who was afraid. David just got through killing a giant. Obviously, he's not afraid of Saul in that sense. He could probably have taken him out anytime he wanted to. We'll actually see that later in this book. And a matter of fact, a lot of people probably would have preferred that if they would have woke up the next morning and David killed Saul while he was asleep, and David was the new king. He was the anointed king, right? I mean, Samuel poured the oil on him, and this is the one that the Lord had chosen. He was a better king, a better person all over the place, but yet what did he do? He feared the Lord more than he feared the praise of men, and so he waited on the Lord. He didn't take matters into his own hands. He waited for the Lord to instruct him. This is the opposite of what we see with Saul, right? He never waits for the Lord. He always acts as he sees fit. 
Remember Saul with the waiting on Samuel. He was supposed to wait seven days, and on the seventh day, he waited all those time, and then he decided to go ahead and disobey. Or the time that he was told to kill everything, and he was like, well, let's not kill everything. Because Saul always had a better idea, right? Well, he lost his kingdom because of his better ideas. But for David, he fears the Lord. We're going to see this later in David's life, where he also makes the same kinds of mistakes that Saul is making. But right now, he is a man after the Lord's heart. He is serving his king with no complaint and with absolute obedience, even though his king is nuts. And he, is see- and he also sought the honor of Saul. We see this as well. Look, how in ver- look, look at a few verses with me. Look at verse 18, how he seeks the honor of Saul. He honors Saul. He's, uh, he's asked to be um, Saul's son-in-law the first time. And David said to Saul, verse 18, Who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be the son-in-law to the king? Verse 23, Saul's servants spoke the words in the ears of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and I have no reputation? David knew that the women were singing songs about him. But he says, No, I'm a poor man with no reputation. Verses 26 and 27. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time expired, David arose, went along with his men, and killed 200 of the Philistines, rather than the 100 that he was asked to do. Why? Because he was honoring this crazy man, Saul. We never get the idea that David is some sort of showboat or even that he's filled with like false humility, but he actually wants to honor his king, though his king is completely dishonorable. It's pretty incredible, right, that one would obey for someone that's so wretched or that one would seek the honor of someone who is so dishonorable. You probably know where I'm going with this. What did Jesus do? David shows himself to be a perfect picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not perfect. David's going to mess up a bunch. We get to see all of it. But he is a picture. Jesus obeyed his Father's law so that we, who were completely incapable of obedience, we even see a little bit of obedience from Saul, but we're completely incapable of it outside of him. We wouldn't want to even if we were capable. And he's going to trade his riches, Jesus, his riches, his righteousness for our filth. And he does so willingly. And were it not for his changing of our hearts, we would want to pin Jesus to the wall with a spear. We would be jealous of him. We would want to be him, not be like him, to be him. We would spit at his gift of righteousness and seethe in anger, setting our eyes against him, being his enemy continually if it weren't for him changing our hearts. But instead, what happened to us, his enemies, even while we were yet enemies of God, he died for us. He changed our hearts so that we, the dishonorable, could have honor, so that we, the selfish, would want to bring him glory. 
And so, brothers and sisters, how do we respond? Let us put down our fear of man and take up a right fear of the Lord. The one who can change our hearts deserves our reverence more than the people who can only break our hearts. And so, in response, in conclusion, we set our eyes on Jesus. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12 quickly. Hebrews chapter 12. I encourage you to read chapter 11 and then end with these first these few verses of chapter 12 to see that, again, the eyes or our eyes shouldn't be set on these people who have done such great things. Yes, they're wonderful people, but our eyes are to be set on Jesus. Hebrews 12, starting at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, who are these cloud of witnesses? The ones in chapter 11, all the ones that have went before us that had such great faith, like David, for instance. He is in this great cloud of witnesses. Since we are surrounded by them, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, Well, who do we keep our eyes on? Well, the writer tells us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's David, right? What's what he did? He kept his eyes on the prize. We're going to see the times that he doesn't. We're going to see the result of those times. But for the most part, he kept his eye on the prize, and ultimately, he looked forward to the day that Jesus would come as well. He had faith in the Savior. And so, what for us? We aren't to have our eyes on any others who have finished the race, or even those who are currently running the race. We keep our eyes on Jesus, the one who did everything for us. And so then let us not fear man who would only seek to destroy us, who can't possibly be the standard that we need. And let us fear and honor our Lord, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord, we pray that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed upon you. You are the one who, from the beginning of time, had a people for yourself, and it was your plan to save them, to come, to be like us, to be one of us, so that you might give us your righteousness in exchange for it, our sin so that we might be justified, so that we might be able to stand before the Father. We look to your goodness. We look to your mercy, to your grace that sustains us, that saves us even today. Lord Jesus, help us to keep our eyes fixed upon you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.